Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. Welcome back to another edition of The Long Way. Well, you've seen the headlines, you've heard about the charges, the fines, and at least one arrest regarding churches or pastors violating public health orders in Canada. So I think it's time to sit down and talk about it and explore the contours around religious freedom in this country. We'll do that shortly with some special guests, Professor Carissima Mathen and Father Deacon Andrew Bennett. And by the way, in that conversation, we'll learn a little bit about why Father Deacon Andrew said this. You know, I have a celibate vocation, but I'm not called to be a hermit. Um, and that's a very <laughs> unique vocation. Um, and I think <clears throat> I think most of us are not called to be hermits. Hmm. It's not every day you get to hear about that in a podcast. But first, let's set things up with a field report from Peter Stockland, who brings us the story of a very frustrated British Columbia pastor. It's still spring and right now i'm looking outside it's about six degrees it's raining heavily there's a bit of a wind kicking up so we're allowed to have worship outside on sunday so you can imagine grandpa and grandma and little johnny and susie and you can imagine heavily pregnant mrs smith they're all standing out there in the cold spring breeze and the april showers at the very same time our beautiful 12,000 square foot building could be used by multiple groups of people, um, support groups, grief support groups, addiction support groups. Uh, they could meet indoors in our church building lawfully. We could have exercise groups of up to 25 people meeting in different parts of the church. Uh, we could use the building all day for a daycare center. We could use it all week for a movie shoot, but we have to stay outside in the rain. We can't, we can't use the church for the purpose for which it was built by the people. That's Reverend Rob Shooten, pastor of Aldergrove Canadian Reformed Church in British Columbia's Fraser Valley, describing in an elemental way both the concrete circumstances and the spiritual effects of his congregation being barred by provincial COVID-19 prohibitions from worshipping indoors together during the past year. Inconvenience and discomfort are compounded by being made to feel like outsiders in their own society, one that has forgotten the centrality of community prayer, song, praise, and thanksgiving. After months of imploring the NDP government to loosen the ban, Aldergrove and nine other Reformed churches across British Columbia launched legal action in early March, asking the Provincial Supreme Court to recognize the restrictions as a breach of charter rights to religious freedom. As I know from having given Shooten and the group some media advice when the suit was launched, it's not a step they took lightly. Shooten makes clear what's at stake is no mere fight for a legal abstraction. The motivation is the denial of worship practices and rituals, large and small, from weekly church attendance to weddings and funerals that are the lifeblood of every faith community. In our congregation, two elderly gentlemen, both aged 94 years, have passed away in the last few months. Um, they were both very dear members of the congregation. Not only was I not able to visit them for the last year of their lives, 
which you know is extremely um, yeah sad for me and for other members of the church. We couldn't have a, a proper funeral. We couldn't gather to remember. We couldn't gather to weep together. Uh, so you have these, yeah, to, to me, that's a form of uh, spiritual and emotional torture when people can't gather to bury the dead. And same with young people getting married. Uh, you know, young people need all the support they can get to enter into the married state and have a good beginning and it's, it's one of the great features of our congregational life to have joyful wedding feasts. And so we, I, think, I think I've had to officiate at six weddings in the last year where that kind of public festivity was impossible. And you, you end up with this very lonely couple on the most important day of their lives. He says discriminatory treatment of churches by the province and by its top public health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, is rooted in a form of secularist thinking that embodies both conscious and unconscious bias against religious faith and, by extension, religious freedom. Uh, we have a government that is obviously secular and, in my experience, shows very little awareness of what religious faith is about shows very little understanding of what religious commitment means. And to the, to the minimal degree that it does understand it, it, considers it a private matter. So we're seeing here secularism, we're seeing the privatization of faith. And the assumption is that if you can practice your relationship with God in your home, uh, what on earth do you need anything else for? Why are you so upset? About 10 days ago, Dr. Bonnie Henry actually expressed um, public amazement. She said, I had no idea that gathering was so important for Christians or for faith groups. There is no choice, he insists, but to fight on for those charter rights, despite the court's rejection last week of a similar appeal from the Calgary-based Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. Schutten warns as well that some congregations are already so frustrated that they're doing what a vast array of other groups have done for decades to combat discrimination that is, engage in civil disobedience. It's not something, as Christians, they want to do. But many feel it's the only option left to get the attention of a government that has left them outside in the cold. Christians don't want to be in non-compliance with the law. Christians earnestly desire to be in compliance. Christians don't want to be uh, at odds with the authorities. We want to live at peace with all men, and we want to live at peace with the government. So when, when we find that no longer possible, then the government needs to sit up and listen. For The Long Way, I'm Peter Stockland. Thanks, Peter. That's a perfect setup for a big-picture discussion with our featured guests, University of Ottawa law professor Carissima Mathen and the director of the Cardus Religious Freedom Institute, Father Deacon Andrew Bennett. Let's just start with a general picture, and Professor Mathen, if I could, with you. Do you feel that at this point, you know, one year into the pandemic, we have a, a better, a, maybe a more constructive understanding of what religious freedom is and isn't in Canada? Well, thanks very much. Um, I think that certainly in terms of the law, we had a fairly well-settled view on what religious freedom is for the purpose of, for example, our fundamental rights under the charter. 
And it's quite a broad uh, umbrella of beliefs and practices that connect people to their sense of what is religious or spiritual for them. And that is unquestionably very important to our society. And that's reflected in our constitution, which protects religion in a number of ways. I think what we're seeing in the pandemic is some understandable, but also difficult tensions between how people manifest those beliefs and the, the communal nature, of course, of much religious life in the context of a challenge, namely a virus that spreads very easily and rapidly in certain kinds of communal settings and through certain kinds of activities. So I don't think as far as the law is concerned that there was that much uncertainty, but the rub is how do we navigate that tension consistent with our constitution, but also consistent with other societal interests. Father Deacon Andrew, what's your take? Well, I, I would have to say that I tend to agree with uh, with Charisma. I mean, I think we had a fairly established understanding of uh, freedom of religion uh, in Canada, both in terms of uh, the constitutional framework um, and various uh, decisions that have that have come through uh, when, when various cases have come up that we've had to adjudicate on religious freedom grounds. Um, the, the present pandemic, of course, as you said, Daniel, at the beginning, has offered uh, some significant challenges to public worship. And I think uh, the fundamental question that we have to address is the question of reasonable limits. So the public health restrictions that came into effect um, and have obviously um, you know, vacillated somewhat, just depending on the, the state of the virus, um, you know, the, the public health restrictions that have come into effect have affected um, public worship in a variety of different ways. Um, but we have to determine whether those limits were reasonable. And I think in, in most cases, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we can say, yes, these were reasonable limits uh, in terms of restricting public worship, uh, because you know, we, wanted, we weren't quite sure exactly the, the way in which the virus spread, how it spread. Um, the degree that we needed to control uh, interactions of, of various types to, to address that. And so I think those uh, restrictions were reasonable. And I think many religious leaders across the country agreed and, and were happy to uh, respect um, public health directives. Um, then as the pandemic sort of played itself out over the last year, we saw uh, different jurisdictions take different approaches to public worship. Uh, so you have, for example, in Ontario, uh, where the province, um, you know, sort of uh, restricted public worship to 30% uh, of fire, uh, fire capacity in, in buildings. Um, and that then went down when we had the little uptick after Christmas and there was a lockdown in Ontario. So it was down to uh, 10 individuals uh, in a particular uh, place of worship. Uh, now across the province, we're generally back up around the 30% uh, level. Um, but that those restrictions were also similar to what we found in other indoor spaces. And so there's a, there a degree, I would say, of, of equity across, across indoor spaces. In British Columbia, however, that has not been the case. Uh, places of worship have been effectively shuttered uh, for the last number of months only allowing uh, 10 people to gather for specific occasions such as uh, weddings, baptisms, and funerals, so effectively uh, privatizing uh, that worship. 
Um, well, at the same time, you know, there is in restaurant dining and various other uh, restrictions were less significant. And so I think, you know, there's been a difference uh, in jurisdictions. And I think that's something we have to consider when we're looking at this question of reasonable limits. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the the situation in British Columbia, because it was just in mid-March that BC's Supreme Court upheld those provincial orders in that province uh, on in-person worship services, despite what the judge acknowledged was a, a violation of, of religious freedom, though he felt it was a justified violation. Uh, Professor Mathen, how do you react to what has happened in BC and kind of the, the contrast with the rest of Canada? Well, I th- I think what we've seen in a number of the court challenges, not all of them, but in a number of them, is that the courts really do take the pandemic as constituting an extraordinary situation to which the, the government is responding and are tending to give, frankly, more latitude to the state to take decisions which clearly infringe on a number of protected charter rights than would be the case in ordinary times. And I think it's interesting to to see how this conversation has evolved. So in, in April and May, when we were first dealing with the pandemic, I think most legal scholars anticipated that the courts would be fairly deferential to the state. The longer that that went on, we thought, courts might tend to uh, resile a bit from that deferential point of view. But the issue is that the nature of the pandemic has also changed and is unstable and shifting in our knowledge even of how the virus moves. You might recall that in April, we were all wiping down our groceries because of a fear of surfaces. And now it seems to be pretty clear that, you know, the, the in some cases, the virus can be transmitted just through, through aerosol um, uh, means. So, that that really has had an effect, I think, on the courts being cautious in in intervening too far. That said, uh, there are legitimate arguments to be raised about the differential treatment, as uh, Andrew noted, treating activities in different ways when you might think that their level of risk is similar, or where the activity accompanies a very important constitutional and social right, that is namely freedom of religion. So I have to say, I'm not entirely surprised at uh, what a number of courts have done in terms of dealing with these constitutional challenges. I do think that as we uh, continue to see these challenges, as they move up the judicial hierarchy, there may well be a point at which uh, the courts do start to take a more uh, active role in in, uh, in in really interrogating what it is that the state is doing. I wonder if we could just step back a bit from the legality, I guess the legal aspects of the question, and try to look at maybe the social aspect of all of this. I'd like to hear from from both of you on something that I, it's it's an intuition perhaps on on my part or maybe just a guess is perhaps a fair way to put it. But I'm wondering if what we see in Canada, or at least in parts of, of, of Canada, you know, different governments have different judgments to make. But I, I wonder if part of what we see is that a great number of people view religion and religious freedom, therefore, as something that applies 
to other people or maybe a specific subgroup of people and a minority of people and that it is something that is private and so that when you see it that way there is i i guess maybe a much a greater willingness to give latitude to restrict expression of that religion as long as you're not you know banning it outrightly and you're not banning what people do uh what people do privately but there's a there's a greater good that they see is being served in that because of that understanding of both religion and religious freedom professor mathen maybe we could start with you do you think that's at play at any level here it's a great question it, it's it's a complicated complicated question because of course it draws on a number of disparate things like the public which of course is extremely diverse and made up of people with all different manner of experiences and belief systems and then the state the decision makers and the pressures to which they're responding so i would say that um i think in terms of the state at least that the, you know the provinces for example that make the, make these regulations i think they seem to acknowledge the value and importance of religious activity to the extent that they per have always permitted certain kinds of gatherings that are, um, you know, associated with religious uh, uh, life. So certain kinds of uh, important life celebrations, I mean, those have, have been permitted, of course, under very, very great restrictions. I'm talking about funerals and so forth. Um, in terms of the, you, you mentioned that the idea that people view religion as private, I mean, that, that brings up a really interesting point, which is what is the place of religion in, in our public life, in our, in our public square? And that's a point on which people can reasonably disagree. I mean, I tend to think that religion uh, functions best when it is given the regard and space and independence uh, that it can best employ when it is seen as more individual or more separate from the state. So I don't necessarily see that as a as a detriment to the protection um, of religion. So maybe I'll stop there, though, because I'd, I'd be really interested to know what what uh, Andrew thinks. Father Deacon Andrew, how do you uh, how do you fall on on this issue? Not only as you know, director of the Cardiff Religious Freedom Institute, but as someone who has a religious vocation too. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really the, the fundamental question around uh, understanding, for understanding religious freedom is what is the nature of religion uh, within our society? What is the nature of belief within our society? And, you know, there's a, a bit of a battle going on within academic circles in particular around the nomenclature for this freedom. Is it freedom of religion or should we be saying freedom of religion or belief? implying that if you add on belief that captures people who don't maybe have a theistic uh, you know, belief system, maybe secular humanists, or they pursue a particular philosophy or, or what have you. And I think we have to recognize that uh, religious freedom, just as all fundamental freedoms, these are freedoms that we hold simply by being human beings. These are not freedoms that have been given to us uh, by any external authority. Rather, external authorities, such as, as the state, uh, are bound to recognize and give pretty wide latitude uh, for these freedoms to be expressed. So religious freedom really comes to this uh, essential quality of our humanity, which is that we have um, this innate desire to seek meaning. 
to seek uh, those things that are beyond us, um, to seek truth, uh, to seek and understand uh, the world around us, to understand our relationship with one another, uh, our relationship with what is transcendent. And so that is so inherent to our human uh, experience that we have to ensure that people have the ability to uh, explore that side of themselves and express the beliefs, especially when they come to an understanding of the truth. They want to be able to live that out. So while certainly there are aspects of religious uh, adherence and religious practice that are private, you know, I have my own private prayer life. Religion, in the case of, if you look at through all of human history, religion has been lived out both privately and publicly. And so while we're always free to express our religious faith privately, uh, even if if someone is being persecuted for what they believe in a given country, um, let's say they've been thrown into prison for, for what they believe or they're in hiding, they can't live out their faith publicly, they're still free in their inner life of faith. Religious freedom, as we understand it, um, in terms of the Constitution, in terms of uh, fundamental freedoms, I think really points to it as a public reality that I need to have as a, as a human being, I need to have the freedom to live out my, my religious beliefs or whatever philosophical beliefs I have in uh, the public square. Now, I agree with Charisma. I think, um, you know, the state... Uh, first of all, has to give a very broad, um, sort of broad uh, uh, room for for religious freedom. But the state should not necessarily uh, be favoring one particular religion or one particular um, expression of belief. Um, And so I certainly agree with that. Uh, It has to have what I think one uh, philosopher called sort of a free market approach uh, to, to religious expression. Charles Taylor has talked about closed secularism versus open secularism. Closed secularism where there's sort of a prescription uh, uh, around religion in the public square, there's a, it's proscribed. Uh, whereas open secularism basically says, yes, you know, with respect um, for, uh, you know, the limits that are, that are reasonable in a free and democratic society, as we read in the charter, religion should be able to express itself publicly in the public sphere. So I think we have to distinguish between um, a uh, the whole question of establishment, which is a bit of has a bit a bit of a different legal understanding in Canada than in say the United States, um, but the idea of a fusion of church and state or mosque and state or any other religion and state is really not what we're advocating when we advocate religious freedom. We're advocating for that ability for individual human beings uh, on their on their own, but also collectively. Uh, to express their faith, because uh, typically we do so both privately and publicly, singularly and collectively. Just v- very quickly from both of you, um, as we wrap up, and, and again, Professor Mathen, let me start with you. Are we in a better place, publicly speaking, uh, legally speaking, in terms of our understanding and appreciation of religious freedom today th- than we were a year ago? That's, so, I, I know I said I know I, I know I said a, a quick answer and maybe that's not, not necessarily I would just possible. Like, I would just like to take a few seconds to say that I I agree with much of what Andrew has just said and I think possibly uh, my understanding of the terms public and private are different from the way that that he was articulating it because to me 
speaking as a constitutional lawyer and scholar, public very much means with the involvement of the state. So I just want to put that, I, I was not suggesting that religion is something that is wholly to be relegated to uh, only private settings. I, I just want to be clear on that so that so there's no, yeah. there's no confusion. Enough. Are we in a better place? I mean, I don't know that we're in a better place in any respect right now, speaking as we are have just passed the one year anniversary of the pandemic. Uh, certainly we're in a better place in some respects that we can see a bit of the light at the end of the tunnel, the, you know, the marvels of scientific discovery and the uh, hope that is provided by the, the vaccines. In terms of the damage that COVID has wrought to our society, I mean, that's ongoing and profound. In terms of our understanding of religious freedom, I think certainly that COVID has been a, a sort of crucible for really viewing religion as an important interest that has to be balanced against, against the state's um, other goals. And I, I, I guess what I would say is, I think we're in the middle of that process. So it's a little hard for me to offer a retrospective at this point, but I'm hopeful. Father Deacon Andrew. I would agree with Krishna. I think that's very well said. I would emphasize uh, one particular point, and that is, I think, and I pray that the experience of the pandemic will further reveal to us the importance of human community. Uh, we cannot thrive outside of community. And, um, you know, as I, as I put it rather pithily in a, a piece that I wrote for Cardus's magazine comment, uh, you know, I have a celibate vocation, but I'm not called to be a hermit. Um, and that's a very <laughs> unique vocation. Um, and I think, <clears throat> I think most of us are not called to be hermits where we, we, we desire the uh, presence, the physical presence of other people. Um, I think that's why we're all experiencing zoom fatigue and various other types of social media fatigue, because we have not had that normal, uh, type of community engagement and, um, you know, religious freedom in many respects is affirming of community. Uh, because, as I said, when we when we live out our, our deepest held beliefs, we typically like to do that with people who share those beliefs and we live them out uh, liturgically, sacramentally, but also outside of the place of worship when we go about doing things out in the world, whether it's um, helping to run a soup kitchen or uh, outreach to uh, you know, new refugees um, or whether it's uh, engaging um, in, in sort of different types of of civic events. And so really, I mean, I hope that we will see a revitalization of different forms of community as we emerge from the pandemic um, at all levels of our society. Uh, and I think faith communities have a particular expertise in this area. Um, and so I look forward to that day. Fascinating conversation. Thank you to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. Well, since recording that interview, I've seen a Vancouver Sun article that says the B.C. government is slightly relaxing its COVID-19 rules on worship services. Places of worship will be allowed to now hold outdoor services for up to 50 people. And apparently some Christian churches will take advantage of that in the lead up to Easter. But at least one Sikh temple tells the Vancouver Sun that... The rule change doesn't help them at all in the celebration of their Vaisakhi festival, and at least one mosque says it's also cold comfort to them ahead of Ramadan because they don't have an outdoor space that they can use. 
So uh, if you want to read that Vancouver Sun article, I will post the link in the show notes. Okay, well, The Long Way offers you a lot to chew on, and if you've got some thoughts, send them my way via media at cardis.ca. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment on this episode and others. And give us a review, too, on whatever platform you use to hear The Long Way. It only takes a moment. Before we go, I do want to share two bits of listener feedback from our last episode on free speech in a toxic culture. Seems to have hit a nerve a bit. One listener who heard Danielle Smith's comments on social media writes, I'm inspired and sitting on the precipice of getting off social media. Alternatively, to be on social media, but like Brad Wilcox, who uniformly posts research and analysis without a hint of snark, or Catherine Lopez, the National Review writer, who exclusively posts prayer requests, scripture, and hopeful pics of religious iconography. Amazing. And I also want to bring you the thoughts of a disappointed listener who didn't like that I called the last U.S. president odious in our last episode. And this listener writes... We the people need to have leaders who truly represent our interests, and I am at the point where I don't care if such leaders are bare-bottomed baboons who fling feces around the office as long as they vote in my interest. The writer goes on to point out some things regarding employment, Mideast peace, and security. Thank you for that. That's rather evocative imagery regarding a pantless primate, which could be rather dangerous for a podcaster. Whoa! Okay, in the meantime, I will keep trying to avoid the bare-bottom baboon that somehow got in here, wow, that was close, and is flinging feces around. Keep that email coming. Thanks for listening. I'm Daniel Prusilides. <laughs>